Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and again turn to Romans chapter 1. The book of Romans chapter 1. And our text this morning will be the first part of verse 21. But I want to read this morning verses 18 to 23 to put us in context this morning. Listen to Paul as he writes, as he is superintended by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we... Go to the word of God this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. And we thank you that it reveals you to us so that we might know you. We thank you that you have written it in human language. You have given it to us in our language with the expectation that it is understandable. And we praise and thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates these truths so that we might know them. And so again this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would teach, be the teacher and that he would take the word of God and apply it to our hearts and to our lives as he see fit and that you might be glorified this morning through the preaching of your word, I pray in your name. Amen. Now I asked this question at prayer meeting and it's a, it was a trick question and I admit that. But I asked if... When psychologists claim that they are studying humanity and they are coming up with their theories, if they are studying general revelation, is general revelation the universe? Is that what general revelation is? And the answer to that is no. The creation is not general revelation. Creation is actually a means to show God's revelation. In other words, God has revealed something about himself, and the word revelation means that it was revealed. God had to reveal it. God had to show it to you, because if he didn't show it to you, you cannot discover it. And there's this idea that if we can look in a telescope or a microscope and we can discover certain things, we're finding things about general revelation. That's simply not true. In fact, this passage goes exactly against that. It says, for since the creation of the world, what? 
His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. What's been known about God and and is seen through what? Through creation, what can be seen. And so we define general revelation as God's universal self-disclosure to all men everywhere at all times. In other words, this was available, it says here, since the what? Creation of the world. So whatever you look through a microscope or when you look through a telescope, and no matter the, the glories that you see there, you're seeing nothing new. Because God, this revelation has been given, and it, general revelation is actually a revelation of God, not discoveries of the world. And so Paul is saying, listen, God has, has not left himself without witness to all men everywhere. And so Paul is now coming to this section where he's going to say to us, listen, all men are responsible to the gospel. Every man needs the gospel and everyone needs the gospel because God is what? Wrathful. In other words, the the good news of the gospel is good news is because it saves you from the wrath of God. And God can justly punish men because they have rejected the truth that they have seen. And as Paul begins this section, beginning at verse 18, running all the way down to chapter 3, verse 20, he starts with this, this understanding, this universal understanding that all men need a righteousness that comes from God by faith alone. And he starts our section here, 18, verses 18 to 32, with an indictment of the immoral pagan. The person who does not claim to worship the true God of the Bible. Anyone who... who is in a false religion, anyone who's never heard the gospel, anyone who is not in any way following the God of the Bible or claiming to follow that God. And against that, he says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is being revealed or is revealed. And literally it is being continually revealed. And ultimately, we will see that that wrath that is being revealed is God's abandonment to sin. But he says, this wrath is continually being revealed right now against those pagans. And really anyone who rejects God. And so the rest of of chapter 1 answers two questions about that statement. First of all, why is God's wrath revealed? That's verses 18 to 23. And then secondly, how is God's wrath being revealed against immoral pagans? Verses 24 to 32. And that's where we will see God's wrath of abandonment. So first of all, Paul answers the question, why? Why is God's wrath revealed against immoral pagans? And he gives two reasons. He says, this is the first reason. God's wrath is revealed because of God, of the pagans' willful rebellion against God's law. He is willfully rebelling against what God has laid out. And, and we saw that man's rebellion really falls into two categories. At first, it falls into the category of ungodliness. Verse 18, he says that 
the man is, he says here that is revealed against all ungodliness in verse 18. Now, that doesn't mean that because that the person is irreligious, it simply means that they are ungodly. And what we define that ungodliness means that you do not have a proper fear of God. You don't honor and respect him and you don't love him. You don't worship him with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. And so ungodliness is a, a failure to fear, honor and to love God. And we went through that several weeks ago. And then he says, the second manifestation is, is unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and un ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this lacks, describes a lack of conformity to the law of God. So then God's wrath then is being revealed from heaven because the pagans' willful rebellion against God's law manifested in these two ways. Now Paul goes on and he gives us a second reason why God's wrath is being revealed against this against the, uh, the pagan, against those who would, do not claim to worship the true God, those who are in false religions. And he, he describes it at the end. He gives a brief summary of that at the end of verse 18. Of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, the pagan is willfully ignorant of God's person. This suppression is something that he does by his will. This is not something that's forced upon him. But he is willfully ignorant of God. And he holds it down. He holds it down in unrighteousness. In other words, because they, there is the fallen nature, men by nature suppress the truth. They love their sin and they want their sin more than they want to, to acknowledge God. And so they are willfully ignorant of him. And then Paul goes on in verse 19 to the end of the paragraph to give us a detailed explanation of this willful ignorance of God. And he's really answering the question how Paul can say that someone without scripture is suppressing the truth. How can you say that? Well, it's because of the fact that God has revealed himself. Look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And then he answers, all unbelievers have this revelation. God has revealed himself. God has not left them with, with, in ignorance. He hasn't left them so that they can't see that. In fact, he hasn't even revealed himself in a way where it's incomprehensible to them. He says, for since the creation of the world, from the very beginning, from the first human being that was created, from the very creation, God has revealed himself. And he has, he has revealed his invisible attributes. He has made known what is invisible through his creation. Specifically, he's revealed his eternal power. And we could say that there's two things that are seen here. First of all, the eternality of God. He existed. In other words, if God created all of this, he must have existed before it. His power is demonstrated through the creation. 
And we can see that, that power even in, in the world, the fact that it's held together. Scientists can't figure out why it's held together. Why isn't it blowing apart? Well, Hebrews tells us what? That he upholds all things by the power of his hand. Look at the power of the storms. And we went through the, the power that's generated through storms. We said at any moment there are 1,800 to 2,000 storms producing astronomical horsepower. God created that. And you can see the power when the wind blows. My wife likes that. I cower under the bed. I'm not sure you should like the wind like that. That's, that's, but there's power there, right? There's power there. And then we see his divine nature, his deity. And it says, those invisible attributes have what? Been clearly seen and understood. Catch that. God didn't just put up, put up some sign. It's not like he put up a, like a, a sign and everybody's going like, what is that? It's like some of my drawings, right? You, you, I draw that and everybody's going, well, I think it might be a cat. It might be a dog. But he says, actually, this painting of the universe is so clear, everybody knows it's a cat. Everybody knows that the world must have been created by God. It's clearly understood. In other words, what they have perceived by their eyes has been understood by their minds, and they recognize that the logical conclusion is there must be a God. And so the result of that is what? So that they are without excuse. They are without excuse. No human being who's ever lived can stand before the holy God and say, I didn't know. Why didn't, you, why didn't you help? Why didn't you inform me? If I would have known, I would have what? Accepted. Paul says actually exactly the opposite. Men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're not looking for God. All have gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so this is not an evidence problem. This is a moral problem. No one can say I didn't know. Now that brings us to verses 21 and 23. And Paul unfolds yet another explanation of man's willful rebellion against God. Specifically explains how men responds to God's revelation in creation. How does, how man responds in revelation to creation, right? God says, you're without excuse. I've given it to you. You've understood it. And now he explains, this is how men, man responds to that. And this is the way that man universally responds. This is, this is how he customarily always responds. This is characteristic of who he is. And all of these responses that follow are just the natural outflow of how man responds. It's a universal response. In verse 21, the man looks at this amazing revelation, this, this demonstration of power and glory, and what does he do? For even though they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, I, I think sometimes when we see this, we see this idea that, well, he's speaking of pagans, and we, we, we tend to have this idea, well, this applies only to those people out in the jungle, right? Those people who are in those tribes, unreached tribes, who are in their own paganism and worshiping and scared of demons. But where is Paul actually ministering? Did Paul go out to the remote parts of the desert? He didn't. He traveled to the large cities in Rome. Think about that. He went to the large cities in Rome where the people were. And he, he preached and taught in the really the cornerstone of the Roman Empire. He lived in a culture that was marked by the great Greek philosophers, by the Romans, their historians and their engineers. And understand that Paul's words here in Romans are not just targeted to that person out in New Guinea who's in a tribe who's never heard the word of God, who's never been co contacted with civilization maybe. But it also applies to what? To the worldly man who's educated. Think about that. He's not just referring, we, we, we want to tuck it away in some foreign country, but it, this also applies to anyone who is in an educated country, who's an intellectual, and it's comprehensive in scope. In other words, it ultimately describes all people who lived every time. No matter how many PhDs, no matter how much education they have, no matter how many universities they've been to, flunked out of, or attended, it applies to them all. And really, we could say any, to anybody in our lives, anybody that we know who does not worship God, this applies to them. Whether it's our family members, whether it's our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. It's a diagnosis of every sinner and it's not something that's happened in the past. It's not for those people in the past who weren't enlightened like we are now. It's for everyone. Now notice God's response begins with their hard hearts. And we will see that. He starts at ground zero. For even know the what? They knew God. They did not honor him or give thanks. There's man's rebellious heart, his hard heart. For even though they knew. Now notice he starts with that little word for. And again he is tying it back to verse 20. So that they are without excuse. He's now about to explain why they are without excuse. Because not only did they have knowledge, but here's their response to that knowledge. He says, for when they knew God. Now immediately you're like, what? 
they knew God? I thought the unbeliever didn't know God at all. In fact, Paul is very, very clear about that, isn't he? He said in Galatians 4.8, as, as speaking to the Galatians before they were converted, and he says to them, at that time you did not know God. Instead, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Is Paul contradicting himself? He said in 1 Thessalonians, the, the Gentiles do not know God. And now he says, for when they knew God. Maybe Paul's confused here. Well, we, we know this much. That Paul, we want to put this verse in context and we want to see what he's actually saying. And in context, what is he referring to? The witness of general revelation to them. In other words, they understood that God exists. They understood his eternal power and his divine nature. In other words, they had access to an understanding about certain things about God. And they understood those things. Now, one of the things I, I want us to squash the myth is that sometimes we think because we say that believer, unbelievers are un, incapable of understanding spiritual truth is that they don't understand the facts of the gospel. And they don't understand the facts of what God is claiming because they really, they clearly do. When you share the gospel with someone and you say to them, God created you. You're responsible to him. God expects perfect obedience to him. God is perfectly righteous. You're under the wrath of God and you're, you're a sinner and you need to change. People go, oh, that's great. I, I didn't know. No, they don't. They get very, very angry very, very, very quickly. Why? Because they understand exactly what you're saying, right? They, they know exactly what you're saying. What they do lack is the capacity for them to accept that truth as true and to embrace it wholeheartedly and say, yes, I am a sinner. God is holy. He has the right to rule my life. I must confess my sin. I must turn. I must live for his glory and extol his glory to the world. That's what they're incapable of. And so when Paul says they knew God here, he's not saying that they have an, a saving understanding of who God is. What he is saying is they, they, there is a comprehension of the truth that God exists. Just like when you give someone the gospel, they look at creation and they recognize it. They understand the facts of it. What they do with it is to reject it, just like they do the gospel. And so they respond with what? Rebellion. Because they refuse to respond appropriately to what God has demonstrated to them in creation. In fact, it's clear here. God, that, because that which is known about God is what? Evident in them, for God made it evident. How did he make it evident? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being what? Understood. Perceived understanding through that which has been made. That's what they know. Do they know that anything more? Do they know that Jesus died on the cross from that general revelation? No. 
Do they know what they need to do to get right with that God? No. But they do recognize that God exists, that God is powerful, his divine nature. It says when they knew, it, it literally means by personal experience. This isn't something that, that, that is foreign to them. It's not, it's not like someone else is witnessing this truth to them. It's not like someone comes alongside you and says, well, you know what, God exists because I've seen it in creation. He's saying that every single individual has known by experience a personal knowledge that God exists. Right? We said last week, God doesn't believe in atheists. Right? Because he says, I've actually made it known to them. And so he says, for the, he says, for since, he says, for even though what they knew God, they had, they had this understanding, not a saving understanding, but they had an understanding of, of that God exists and of his eternal power. What's man's response to this? When they knew God, what is he, what's his first response? They did not honor him as God. This is how they respond. This is how they, their heart looks like. They did not, it says here, they did not honor him. Now, if you have the New American Standard, and many of you do, you'll notice that in the margin there, it says this word can be translated glory, glory. And I think that's probably the, word, the, the best uh, translation of this, the Holman Christian Standard, the New King James, and the Legacy Standard all translate it this way. And men refuse to what? To glorify God. They, They refuse. In other words, they will not give him glory. So what do we mean then by glory? Well, the the definition of this word glory, doxa, is to influence one's opinions of another so as to enhance that person's reputation, to praise, honor, or to extol. In other words, it is to, to use your opinion to give glory or to enhance the person's reputation. Now, that does not mean that we can add to God's glory but rather we are to what? Reflect it. We are to give praise to it. We are to, exhort, to give exhortation to it. Now, it, this is kind of a remarkable statement. It says that man refuse to give God glory. They refuse to give him the honor and the glory that he deserves. Now, if we know anything about Scripture and we know anything about God, God is all about His glory. And we have to see just how serious this is. God said in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praises to graven images. I will not share my glory. I'm about my glory. Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake... 
for my own sake I will act, for how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will what? Not give to another. God said that he created all things for himself. He created all things what? For his glory. And that's why when we look at Psalm 19, it says the heavens what? Are telling of the glory of God. They are presently actively telling of the glory of God and their expanse declaring the work of his hand. Day to day pour forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Everywhere. And one of the things we recognize is that creation is unmuted. Creation is unmuted. God created it for his glory and it continues to demonstrate that even in a sinful world, in a cursed world, it continues to proclaim the glory of God unfettered and unkept. And so God is about his glory. God has created all things for his glory and and the universe continues to do that. And man was created to what? To glorify God. In fact, when God put Adam in the garden, what was Adam to do? Rule and subdue the earth. Why was he doing that? It wasn't to make much about Adam, but it was to Adam was to be God's vice regent to rule the world to demonstrate God's glory by first of all living and glorifying God and demonstrating God's character through his life as he ruled the earth. He was all about God's glory. Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? Man is chief end is what? To glorify God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? The glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be what? Glory forever. We are to tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples, 1 Chronicles 16, 24. David writes, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, worship the Lord in holy array. This is what we were created to, to do. Worthy art thou, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were what? Created. All things, including you, were created for the glory of God. Your salvation is about the glory of God. The angels in heaven will look at the redeemed church and they will worship God and they will fall down and worship him and they will, he, they will look at this ridiculous thing called the church and marvel at God's grace that he would save them and God will be glorified. And so they would not honor him. They would not glorify him. 
They would not give him the honor that do his name or enhance his reputation. They would not honor and acknowledge his attributes, praise him for his perfection, recognize him for who he was. Put it another way, not only, not only is glorifying to exalt and to recognize God's supremely worthy of honor and acknowledge him and his divine attributes and really to worship him for all his perfections and for all who he is and to ascribe to him who he truly is. But really we could say this, and we've been there, When they say they didn't glorify God, well, how, I mean, let's start here. First of all, it doesn't mean adding glory to God. But how does man glorify God? Well, first of all, to glorify God in, in a sense means to acknowledge him as the true God. In other words, they were to glorify God. They had to what? acknowledge that he exists, that he was the true God that he was the only God. And you have to give him what belongs to him in your thoughts, your words, and your actions. And then you must say that he is your God, not just that God exists, not just that he is the only God, but that he is your God. And really to glorify God is exactly the opposite of the ungodliness that we described earlier. Right? We said that ungodliness was a, re was a refusal to what? Love God. Right? To honor God. To fear him. And really ungodliness is exactly the opposite of glorify glorifying him. Rather than loving him, you, you despise him. Rather than giving him, fearing him, you live without fear. You do not honor him. You don't love him. You do not glorify him. And so Paul says, they refuse to what? To glorify. They refused to give him the honor and the glory that he deserves to at least recognize that he exists and his eternal power and his deity, his eternality, and they simply what? Suppress that truth. Man starts what? He starts with the knowledge of God. He doesn't discover as if somehow it comes later, but rather God's truth is available to him. False religions are not a, a, a seeking after God. They are part of the suppression of who God is. And so men in, are hard-hearted in their rebellion. They refuse to glorify God as God. They, f they refuse to acknowledge that he is the true God and who he is. But there's a second manifestation of a hard heart and that is this, he does not thank God. Notice verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. 
Now, that's kind of a remarkable statement in, in this fact. Would you, would you put the glory of God and thankfulness together? Do they seem equal to you? One of these seems greater than the other, and yet Paul puts them together. Isn't that interesting? One writer said, rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of one whom thank you is redundant. Isn't that interesting? So, so if, if they are on an equal level here, and, and what's the connection between glorifying God and giving thanks? Why would he put it here? James Montgomery Boyce says this, Paul teaches that the existence of God is, abundant, is abundantly disclosed in nature. This means, of course, not merely that God exists, but also that all we are, see, and have have been brought into being by him. He is the creator of everything. So if we have life, it is from God. If we have health, it is from God. The food we eat, the clothes we wear, the friends we share, everything good is from God. If we failed to be grateful for this, it is because we are not really acknowledging him or are rejecting a proper relationship with him. What Boyce is saying, he says, listen, the moment you come into realization that there is a God and you know you already have because God has made it evident to you, then immediately you know that he made all things, including you. That means everything I have without exception comes from God. So what would lead me not to thank God? Only a hard-hearted rebellion. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. I understand good things come from God. But what happens when I experience bad things? You know, there's suffering and pain and hunger. We die, we get sick, disease. Some people would argue, well, you know what? God can't be all good, right? Because of all of these things. Writer goes on, but even here we show our ingratitude for we deny the fact that if we got what we deserve, we would all be what? In hell. Sinners that we are. Our very existence as sinners should cause us to praise God for his abundant mercy. Isn't that interesting? We often, we, we're, we're good to take God's good, but when things aren't perfect, we question him. Often we heard that, qu that question, right? Why do good things happen? To, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the Bible answers that pretty clearly. There are no good people. And this is where we have to recognize that only the Holy Spirit will allow us to accept these ideas because these are outrageous. But the Bible's clear, Right? that there are no, none good. Jesus said, why do you call me good? There are none good except what God. 
Now, Jesus was God and he was good, right? But the reality, God says there's none righteous, none, no, not one. There's none that are, that are worthy. But the question implies this. I deserve something better. I deserve something better. Right? I deserve more good. The question really should be, why does anything good happen to us at all? And that only comes from the grace and the mercy of God. And remember, it is only God's general grace that allows sinner to even exist and enjoy this world even now. God in his forbearance has what passed over sin until Jesus Christ came. And he is still holding back the gates of mercy until he comes. And until you die, God's mercy is still available to you. We often forget that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above or every good giving. Anything good in your life is a result of God's goodness. Everything. The breath that you take, your next heartbeat, if you have one. Not that you have a heart, your next heartbeat. Right? This is coming down from the fathers of light. There's a picture here. It's almost like a stairway with these gifts coming down one after another. But rather than give thanks, they refuse to give thanks. In fact, if you listen to the world, all you hear is what? Complaining. Complaining. A right of entitlement. I deserve better. And then a happiness, right? And really, when you, when you break down, instead of thankfulness, you have ingratitude. And ingratitude comes from what? Greed. I want more. I deserve better. I remember reading Ephesians 4, 18 and 19. And Paul is listing the sins. They, they are without God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of what? Of the hardness of their heart. Here's that hardness of man's heart. They, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality to practice every kind of impurity with what? Greediness. Never satisfied. Greedy. Wanting more. Deserving more. Ungrateful. And you must realize that all sin is ultimately greediness. It's believing a lie and desiring something that God says is not good for you and you go after it because you think you know better. And the more that you desire, the more unhappy you are. The more greedy you are, the less thankful you are. And Paul, God says this is an abomination to him. Un lack of gratitude and a lack of thankfulness is actually what? An abomination to him. How can we as believers be marked with that? If this is the mark of the unbeliever. So how does the sinful man respond when good things come into his life? Well, he will respond several ways. You'll have many people in false religions who will, will thank who? Their God. Thank Allah. 
whoever their God is, whoever they bow down to, right? Good things happen and they give what? They give praise and thanks. And they take what God, what Paul said about God's provision in Acts chapter 14, being with their hearts being full of food and gladness because of God's provision, rain on the, on the righteous and the unrighteous. And they thank, thank somebody else. If you remember in Hosea chapter 2, Hosea is writing about Israel's idolatry. And God is speaking how he has provided for them. He's given them flax and oil and drink. And what does Israel do? For she, God says, for she does not know that it, it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished her with silver and gold. And then what does he say? Which they used for Baal. That's the unredeemed heart. God gives good gifts and they give credit to who? False gods. They take God's good gifts and they thank somebody else. There's another respond, response. They attribute the, the things they enjoy to themselves. Now this is many, many in our society are here, right? Why are you successful? I work hard. I'm smarter than most. Actually, I don't know anybody smarter than me, but I, you know, like, I'm just, like, I, I just have insight that others don't. I just have natural abilities that are beyond the normal. Unfortunately, 80% of people believe that, so it's hard to know where normal actually falls. But people believe what? That somehow they've done it themselves. You can almost hear Nebuchadnezzar, can't you? Looking at his palace, looking around, saying, this is my palace, right? That was made what? By the might of my power and for my glory. And men say, hey, I did it. The reason I'm successful, the reason I have all these things is not because God in heaven in his providence allowed them to happen in my life and he gave them to me and provided for me. It was all me. I did it. I pulled it off. I have the skills. My glory. Right? Like have Nebuchadnezzar. My glory. Look at me. Look what I have achieved. And so we basically bow down and worship self, give ourselves credit and thank ourselves. The third way unbelievers respond is they enjoy the gift without really acknowledging it all. This is a lot of people. Give it no thought at all. They just enjoy. They don't pretend it came from anywhere. Right? How often do we live that way? We, we just take things for granted. We're not saying this, I deserve it or it's great. I just take it and I, and I, and I enjoy it, right? Had food this morning. Yeah, enjoyed it. Didn't think about the nice warm thermostat that put my furnace on this morning. 
Didn't think about the car that ran so nicely to get here and the fact that I have one. Just assumed that those are the, are the necessities of life and they're mine, right? No thought at all. Jesus touches on this in Luke 6.35. He's talking about loving our enemies and doing good just as our fathers does. And he says this about the father. For he himself is kind to ungrateful men. God is kind to ungrateful men. This is how people respond to God's good gifts. They take it for granted. Now we just want to make sure we recognize that this is the willful response of men. They are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And if you're still not convinced, glance down at verse 28. This is a universal response of all men everywhere. This is customary. This is what they do. It says in verse 28, and they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Literally, it reads, they did not approve of God to have him in their knowledge. There's that willful choice. They did not approve of God to have him in their knowledge. It's not an accident. This is a willful choice, a willful rebellion against the holy God. Rejection that he has the right to rule their lives. Rejection that he is the creator. Rejection that he is Lord Lord over all. And so Paul says they did not honor God or give thanks. A great affront to the God, our creator and sustainer. It's a hard-hearted rebellion of man. They refuse to glorify him and they refuse to thank him. And again, Ephesians 4.18 says what? Because of the hardness of their heart. This quote, listen to this quote. by this French Huguenot pastor. Thankless men are like swine feeding on acorns, which though they fall upon their heads, never make them look up to the tree from which they come. Thankless men are like swine feeding on acorns, which though they fall upon their heads, never make them look up to the tree from which they come. That's the sinful response God's goodness. So how do we deal with this as believers? With gratitude. For the believer, actually, gratitude is both natural and commanded. Psalm 54, 14 says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. Psalm 106, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is what? Good. Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord for what? He is good. Psalm 100, enter into his gates with thanksgiving into his courts for praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. And the Psalms go on and on 
speaking of our need. It's interesting if you go to to Ephesians 5.18 or Colossians 3 that we read here this morning. We're not to be under the influence of alcohol, be not drunk with wine, but what be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And if you're filled with a spirit, you're going to what? First of all, you're going to have spirit-filled music, your God-centered music. Speak to one another in psalm, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart. But if you're controlled by the spirit and you, can, and you are full of the word, there's a second effect. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. So when the Spirit is dominating your life, you are going to be what? Thankful. That is the natural response of being fulfilled is you're going to glorify him through song and in music and you are going to what? Be thankful. And that's part and parcel of what being a spirit-filled Christian. That's why Paul, remember we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, everything give thanks for this is what? The will of God for you. We need to be grateful. We need to start counting our blessings and, and remembering what God has done for us and stop taking everything that is good in our life for granted because we've had it for so long, we, we tend to spurn it. We tend to take it for granted. But maybe here this morning, you're not a believer. And you are under the danger of being under the wrath of God. And you have no excuse. God has revealed himself. God has demonstrated who he is enough to you. Not only have you seen his glory in creation, not only have you known of existence, but you know that you need to glorify him. You know know that you need to be thankful. And you know that you're not. You know you don't glorify him and you know you're not thankful. And you know you're responsible to him. Paul reminds us, this is why you need the gospel. This is why you need the gospel. Because you are under the wrath of God and you need the righteousness that comes through his son, the substitute righteousness, you need to repent and come to him today. And recognize, it does not matter what you think. It doesn't matter if you, re, if you think it's silly or reject it. The truth does not change. So today I beg you, Call upon him. Ask him to give you repentance. Ask him to open your eyes. Ask him to regenerate you so that you can come in faith and and repentance. That you can now glorify him. Because this is God's view of you. You are a truth-suppressing, rebellious person against God who are under his wrath in this life and even in greater degree for all eternity. You are responsible for what you hear. 
do not leave Bowmanville Baptist Church without having a response to what God has revealed. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look at verse 21, we see ourselves. This was who we were before you saved us, before you opened our eyes and showed us who you were. We were rebellious. We were hard-hearted. We did not glorify you. We did not give thanks. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us those now that we know you, that we would live up to what we have been saved to, that we would glorify you and, and name your praises to the world, and that we would be grateful for all that you have done for us and all that you have given to us. May we be known as a church that is not a grumbling church, but a grateful church. We have been given so much. We thank you that you have saved us from that, and we pray for anyone who has not come from this stage, that you would be merciful to them and grant them eyes to see, that they too might see your glory and give thanks, I pray in your name. Amen.